I always think that, you know, OCD will latch on to whatever it is that you find value in. OCD will latch on to whatever it is that is a, that you're not able to accept uncertainty about. Um, I always say like, whatever it is that you're not accepting certainty about, that's what OCD will latch on to. Welcome to a Healthy Push podcast. I'm Shannon Jackson, former anxiety sufferer turned adventure mom and anxiety recovery coach. I struggled with anxiety, panic disorder, and agoraphobia for 15 years. And now I help people to push past the stuff that I used to struggle with. Each week, I'll be sharing real and honest conversations along with actionable and practical steps that you can take to help you push past your anxious thoughts, the symptoms, panic, and fears. Welcome. You're right where you're meant to be. Hi, Jenna. Welcome to a Healthy Push podcast. I am so excited for our conversation today, but before we dive in, can you just start by giving us an intro to who you are and what you do? Absolutely. So thank you so much for having me. This is one of my favorite things to do. So um, a little bit about me is I uh, my name is Jenna. I'm a therapist uh, at NoCV, which is a teletherapy platform. We provide uh, services for individuals in and out of the United States who have OCD and related conditions. Um, but my journey really started, I think my first memory of being really anxious was in kindergarten. Um, I've always been an anxious person, always remembered uh, being anxious to go to school, meet new people, but I always knew I just need to do it. I just need to do it. And as soon as I do it and just get it over with, it'll be easier than this. It'll be easier than just uh, feeling afraid and worrying about it all day. So then when I uh, went to college, luckily, somehow very serendipitously, I learned about exposure and response prevention or ERP um, in my intro to psychology course. And from then on, it just clicked. It was like, I have to do this. This is this fits with me. This is so aligned with how I live my life and what I believe really, really strongly in. Um, and I always knew I wanted to be a therapist, but I didn't want to be the, you know, what we typically traditionally think of as a therapist, right? Like it's warm and fuzzy and we cry and we talk about deep things. And, um, of course there are elements of that that I still do. Um, but it's what ERP is, is, just it's a lot more directive, much more of a behavioral intervention. Um, so I just tried to learn everything that I possibly could about ERP. Um, every internship, I tried to work with individuals who have OCD um, and related conditions. I ended up working at the uh, one of the one or two um, residential OCD and anxiety recovery centers uh, that is residential. So it's some of the most debilitating cases of OCD in the whole entire world. Um, and now I work at NoCD, which is, like I said, a, a teletherapy platform and a great app, but tons of resources on there for people. So um, super excited. And I love this treatment more than anything. It's wonderful and it's super effective. That is so, so cool. So I didn't know that you had a personal experience yourself. And so that kind of, <laughs> I always have like a set of questions that we're running from, but now I'm really curious. Do you mind sharing a little bit of what your personal struggle looked like? Sure. Yeah. So like I said, it was, it presented itself probably more socially. Um, I present probably as though I'm very extroverted and confident, but I I've always been very good at uh, talking the talk and walking the walk. Um, I am the queen of faking it till you make it. I always have been. <laughs> um, I'm actually a very anxious person. Um, 
I doubt myself all the time. There's a lot going on in my mind. Um, but you wouldn't really probably know that from just a, a basic conversation or seeing me. So, um, yeah, I just, it was a lot more socially in nature. Um, whenever I was in college, in hindsight, it was very academic driven, um, especially once I knew what it was that I wanted to do. Um, and then when I had my son was when it really became more severe, I would say, when it really started to become impairing, when it wasn't just me being a worrier or an anxious kid, it was mm-hmm. like, wow, this can get really serious. Um, so I have a four-year-old um, and I really struggled with harm intrusive thoughts, with sexual intrusive thoughts, um, some contamination fears. I mean, anything and everything I feel like I got uh, nailed with when it came to postpartum OCD. So uh, that was really horrific in nature. Got to the point where I was so afraid that I had hurt him on accident, that I was so sleep deprived that I didn't remember, um, that I would be checking my son in the middle of the night thinking, oh my gosh, did I like bash his head against the wall? Did I hurt him? And I don't remember. And my sleep deprivation just compounded that. Like, well, you checked him, but are you so tired that you didn't remember what you saw? Um, And it just got really, really bad. So I went to my own treatment. Yeah. And I went through ERP as a sufferer versus a therapist just teaching about it. And it has made me such a more compassionate therapist. And I feel like I'm a different, I'm I'm so much more equipped uh, to deal with it personally, but also to help other people deal with it and hopefully uh, help them in a different way that I wasn't able to access before. Yeah. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing all that. I know that people will be able to relate to that. And when you're, when you were saying, you know, part of your journey, I didn't realize even that postpartum, um, postpartum OCD is something that exists because so often you hear postpartum anxiety and like, you know, postpartum depression, those are like the big ones, but I, I can totally relate to, you know, when, when you were talking about the intrusive thoughts and those, the sort of obsessive thoughts that can definitely take control and, Um, wreak havoc in your life. So let's jump in and just tell us what the heck is ERP? (laughs) Awesome. So um, ERP is the gold standard treatment for OCD and anxiety and for related conditions. When I say related conditions, we're talking about um, hoarding is a related condition. Uh, There are some other related conditions in there as well. Um, But it works really well for other anxiety disorders too. So like social anxiety, phobias, generalized anxiety, disorder. Um, But exposure and response prevention, we think of it as a two-part solution for a two-part problem. So with OCD, we have the obsessions and we have the compulsions. Um, The obsessions being the recurrent and intrusive experiences that someone experiences. And then we have the compulsions, which are these kind of safety or compensatory behaviors that someone feels a drive or an urgency to do to feel better. Um, And those compulsions negatively reinforce the obsession for next time. They temporarily make you feel better, but make you feel worse in the long run. Um, And so exposure and response prevention is that two-part solution. So we have the exposure piece, and then we have the response prevention piece. Or you can also see it as ritual prevention. So response prevention, ritual prevention, same thing. Um, and essentially what it is, is it's the gold standard treatment. It's it's more effective actually for OCD and anxiety than any other treatment for any other disorder. So I always say as awful and as debilitating as OCD and anxiety can be, with this treatment, it doesn't have to be that debil. It doesn't have to be as debilitating. So um, the it's the most effective treatment. So 
what we do as far as the exposures go is you work with a therapist and there are some self tools online, self help, you know, things that people can do, of course. But when you're working with a therapist, we do exposures, which are essentially these things that we have people do to face their fears. So for me, an exposure, it was an exposure to, um, you know, in the middle of the night when I wake up and I have that intrusive thought, oh my gosh, what if you hit your son and you don't remember? I had to stay in my bed and resist checking him. Um, it was an exposure for me to look up images of little babies or little kids with bruises. Um, and the response prevention piece is really important because you can't just do the exposure. You can't just face your fear and then do all the rituals that you would normally do afterwards, right? Then nothing changes. So you really need to have the response or the ritual prevention piece where that's the when the change occurs. So that would be, you know, for example, someone touching something dirty and then you don't wash your hands after. Uh, You look at a picture of a baby with bruises or cuts on them and you don't go and check your son afterwards. So you really truly expose yourself to the fear uh, in whatever capacity that is. And we try to do it in a slow and gradual but still challenging way. Um, Nothing that we need to, you know go really in depth about or super, you know, blow you out of the water with small and gradual. um, But you want to make sure that you're resisting those rituals. So the whole purpose here is that you are learning to face your fear um, and you remove the compulsion that you would normally do after. And it is anxiety provoking because you're not doing that compulsion afterwards. But two things happen. You either habituate to it, so you just kind of get used to that uncomfortable feeling. And um, I can go into depth about that later, but it's essentially just we habituate to everything. We habituate to scents. We habituate to temperatures. We basically get used to things that we do repetitively. So you Mm -hmm. habituate to that sensation and that experience. But then there's also a lot of learning that takes place, right? So you learn, huh, I can look at these images and it feels uncomfortable, but, you know, I, I, my son doesn't have that on him, <laughs> uh, you know, those cuts or those bruises. Uh, I can tolerate those emotions and I can move forward. I don't have to go and check on my son 15 times in order to, you know, make sure that he's safe. Um, so there's a lot of learning that takes place, but uh, it's really effective. It's challenging for sure. And it sounds scary, but um, if done in the right way with the right guidance and the right support, it can be so incredibly life-changing. Yeah. I'm glad that you said that part, that it can sound really scary because I think, you know, my personal experience, and I'm sure you felt the same way and a lot of people do, is that exposure, like, no, thank you. I don't want to do that because it really is, you've gotten so used to either avoiding or not, you know, doing the things or facing your feelings or the thoughts or any of that stuff because it is scary. Um, So what's a typical starting point for ERP? Because I know the the exposure part, like you hear, you can do exposures without throwing yourself full force into the situation. So like, what does that look like? Yeah. So, you know, with anybody, we're going to start with just some basic psychoeducation, right? So I think so much of OCD comes from it sounds so counterintuitive, right? I I know that this thing has been making you feel better. And I know this feels like this is the right thing to do. Yeah, go check on your baby. Um, And it it doesn't have to just be that. That's certainly just an example. But 
um, so much of it is just a re-education about this is what's going on. Um, and this is why you feel the need to do the thing that you do. This is why it's making you feel better in the moment, but this is why it's actually making you feel worse. And this is why we need to do this instead. Um, so I think psychoeducation is huge. And I think the best ERP therapist is going to wear the teacher hat most frequently, because I think it's really important for the person like the client to eventually learn to be their own therapist, to eventually learn how to create their own exposures and how to generate their own list of triggers the way that we do in session. Um, So after that really thorough psychoeducation piece, we jump into what we call self-monitoring. So I always encourage people after we've gone through some education to either break out a little notebook, um, a piece of paper, or even their phone is fine. And for a couple days, monitor and write down in the moments, not 20 minutes later or at the end of the day, because you won't remember. Um, we never remember things like that. So in the moment as they're happening, write out triggers. You know, um, when I go to, you know, triggers for me would have been driving anywhere with my baby. I was terrified that I was going to leave him somewhere. And again, am I too sleep deprived to remember um, (laughs) driving with my baby anywhere? Um, Getting ready for bed was always very triggering because I was nervous that, okay, he's, you know, separate from me. This is going to be anxiety provoking. I need to check him. Um, Any scratch or mark on my son was very triggering. So those would be all things that I would write down. And of course, they're going to be wildly different for everybody. And someone who has someone else who has postpartum OCD might have completely different triggers than me, right? So I was never really too worried about chemicals or uh, non-organic foods or poisoning my baby. Other moms would say, I've never worried about harming my baby, right? But we have, you would say that we have the same subtype. So I hear so often that people are like, well, what exposure should I do for postpartum OCD or what exposure should I do for sexual orientation OCD? And it's like, I can't tell you. Like, it totally depends on your own unique triggers, your own unique goals. Um, And so that's why the self monitoring piece is so important. So, just writing out what are your triggers? What are the things that kind of kick up the dust for you? And then at that point, I would work on writing out and identifying what are my rituals? What are my compulsions? What are the things that I feel this urgency to need to do? Is it check him? Is it going back through my mind and trying to replace certain things? Is it asking my partner for reassurance? Is it um, having someone else do this thing for me, which is what we would call kind of like an accommodation? Uh, Could be so many different things. Could be anything. Could be as simple as avoidance, right? I'm avoiding going to the grocery store with my child because I don't want to get into this ritualistic thing. Um, And so once you know that, then you can start to, by yourself, if you have to, or with a therapist, really identify, okay, what are some good exposures? Uh, Looking at this list of triggers, you know, what are the, where's a good place to start? So if it were me, just as an example, you know, driving with my son, if that was a trigger, it doesn't have to be that I'm driving, you know, 30 minutes on the highway and after going to a really busy place or on a really cold day, which was the most anxiety provoking situation, maybe it's just driving him around the block. 
right? So maybe yeah. it's just pulling out of my out of my driveway. Um, maybe it's just putting him in the car seat and then bringing him back into the house. So there's always a way to water down these exposures and to do it in a way that's not blowing you out of the water and having you do something that's totally out of your comfort zone and a 10 out of a 10. So that would be my advice to anyone who's like turned off by the concept of exposure work. There's always a way to find something. Um, And even if you feel like, oh my gosh, I can't not do my rituals, well, then we can work on reducing rituals. So maybe instead of checking your baby, if you check your baby at night 15 times, maybe we limit it to 12. Maybe then we limit it to 10, right? So there's always a way to get your foot in the door. And I would hate for anyone to be thrown off by the concept of exposure work because they feel like, I can't do that. We will always find a way. Yeah. Oh, this is all so interesting to me. And I'm so glad that you have the approach of starting small. I love how you said a watered down approach because it is, it's so intimidating and it's like, you don't have to go full throttle. Um, You can start small. And the first piece, you know, just the why, the education, like, why am I doing this? Why is this happening? How is it affecting me? Like that is such a huge piece because like I was never diagnosed with OCD myself, but I had a lot of intrusive thoughts and struggled immensely surrounding my panic disorder and agoraphobia with like, you know, like you said, avoidance, all those types of behaviors. Um, And I just didn't understand why, like, Mm -hmm. and that was such a big piece that I was missing for so long in my journey. And so That's huge. And the other steps that you broke down, so simple. Um, Not that they're not hard. Of course, they're hard. Um, But But they're practical. You can take them. Yeah. You can start. I feel like so many people relate to what you just said. Like, I I just, I don't know where to start. I don't know why. It's just like this big mess of of, uh, just scattered lines and mazes in their head. And it's like, these are small steps that people can take to start to untangle some of those messes in their head. Yeah. And I love, I am sure you get this too. I, I often get the questions of relating specifically to exposure and it's like, well, what do I do? Like, how far can I go? Like what, you know, what's too far? What's doing too much? And I'm like, it's so specific to you. Like, it's so hard to answer that question. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think this really, you know, helps to break it down in a way where it makes sense. Mm-hmm. So I'm really curious because of course my community is really um, geared toward panic and agoraphobia. And this might be a really silly question, but I'm going to ask it because I know that people are probably wondering, is this something that's ever used for panic and agoraphobia in the sense of you, you know, have immense fears and you probably are struggling with panic attacks. And so you probably have some of these behaviors of avoidance, um, rituals, safety behaviors, all that stuff. Is ERP ever used for panic and agoraphobia? 100%. So um, especially when we do work with people who have panic, and you can imagine, right, when we're working with individuals who have OCD, very rarely is it just OCD. There's usually some other comorbid conditions or secondary conditions that we're dealing with that also need our attention and some behavioral intervention. Um, And so panic is one of them and agoraphobia can be one of them for sure. So um, when someone's really struggling with panic, and again, it doesn't have to be It usually is, but, you know, certainly individuals with very identifiable panic attacks, sometimes they have a trigger, sometimes they don't. Um, But usually, even if it's not to that extent, a lot of times people with OCD, they fear fear. And that's really, truly what panic is, right? This fear of fear. And so when someone 
when I get the sense that someone might uh, benefit from this type of work, I immediately will take them through what we call the anxiety sensitivity index. And so uh, you can easily look it up online, uh, the Anxiety Sensitivity Index, and it's essentially a questionnaire where it will ask you, you know, do you get nervous when you start to sweat? Do you get nervous when you start to feel your heartbeat racing? And it's a series of questions. Do you know how do you feel whenever you are nervous in a public place? Um, it's a series of questions that will essentially help you and your clinician identify to what extent do you have anxiety sensitivity or that fear of fear. And so we all have a little bit of it, right? These are not preferable experiences. I, I think we would all prefer to feel good and clear and <laughs> with it and comfortable, right? But the reality is, is that we do experience these things from time to time. We cannot prevent this, these sensations all the time. And what we can do is prevent our suffering with it. We can prevent the exacerbation that we often do and contribute to the initial problem. And so we actually will introduce what we call interoceptives. Um, and they're essentially body exposures. So I usually will introduce this again after some psychoeducation, after they have seen other exposures work. Um, but yeah, we do interoceptives with people all the time. So this is where we would essentially intentionally evoke these uncomfortable physiological sensations like dizziness. I might have someone spin in a chair and then, you know, yeah. sit with that uncomfortable feeling and uh, I'll have them rate it, you know, on a scale of zero to 10. How uncomfortable is this for you? How much do you not like this sensation? Um, and the goal isn't to spin in a chair and not feel dizzy. We would all spin in a chair and right. feel dizzy, right? The goal <laughs> is to not freak out and have your whole world come to an end, right, in that moment because you feel dizzy. Um because the reality is, is that unless you bubble, are bubble wrapped and you stay in your house and you, you know, disengage from meaningful, enjoyable activities all the time, you're probably going to experience some of these things from time to time. And we don't want your fear to get in the way of your values. So what we see is, you know, for instance, with the spinning, sometimes people don't always experience the same fear of fear, right? So sometimes they're fearful of dizziness. Sometimes they're like, oh, no, I think that's great. I But I can't handle being short of breath. And so we'll have them run in place for 30 seconds or we'll have them breathe through a straw. Um, and so then what we would do is we would kind of gather the peak anxiety after that experience. And what we'll see is habituation occur. We generally see that people, you know, the first couple trials, they do it and it's a six or a seven out of a 10. And then they do it a couple times and it's a five and then they do it a couple more times it's a four or a three and then eventually we don't need them to get down to a zero but we do need them to get to the point where like okay this isn't isn't terrible I can move on with my life uh, so that's habituation at work but then there's also the inhibitory learning process which is like okay, that was uncomfortable and it didn't last forever. That was uncomfortable and I didn't die. Um, that was uncomfortable and I still got through that class. Uh, so that's the inhibitory learning model at work. Um, and then you can also pair those interoceptives with other exposures. So if I have panic and I have postpartum OCD, I can you know breathe through a straw and then drive with my son. Um, of course, that's a very elevated, you know, way towards the end of treatment potentially when I'm ready for it. But um, yeah, there are so many things that we can do. And uh, with agoraphobia, right? It's like 
we don't need you to go from being isolated in your house for a couple weeks to just like walking around the neighborhood saying hi to everybody. Maybe it's, you know, just leaving your door open one inch. Maybe it's taking one foot, maybe it's one step out of your front porch. Maybe it's opening a window. Um, Like I said, there's always a way to kind of make it work for the person. Yeah, I love that. But this is so interesting and wild to me because, of course, never having been diagnosed with OCD, but struggling with a lot of these things. And I've been doing, you know, more research and finding more people on Instagram that are talking about ERP. And I'm just like, this seems like the treatment that I went through myself, but I didn't, I never knew what it was. And it was so immensely helpful, but like just putting these pieces together now, it's crazy because like I, I had such severe driving anxiety and panic attacks constantly. And I'd get in the car and like, I would do the behaviors where I would either pull over, I'd turn around, go home. I'd call my husband or my mom and like all those behaviors. And I did this for so long and a big part was I was missing the psychoeducation. I didn't understand why it was happening. I didn't understand why I was doing it. And like you said, it was the fear that fear, like I yeah. was so fearful of the sensations, the symptoms, the thoughts. I mean, the intrusive thoughts. I think that's a thing a lot of times too with OCD is people really hone in and think that it's, you know, the, the big ones, like you hear the contamination, OCD, stuff like that. But can you maybe talk a little bit because I know um, people are probably trying to put themselves into buckets and I like I don't want to do that. Um, but like what else can OCD look like? Because it's not just the staples that people think about, right? Right. And I this is my favorite, favorite topic of all time. So um, we feel really strongly in the OCD community. And I know um, everyone, like you said, wants to put themselves into buckets and I'm a, I'm, I'm guilty of it. I'm doing it here. Postpartum OCD and contamination OCD and sexual orientation OCD. And I, I think those subtypes are great. I think that they provide a sense of solidarity. It obviously provides some ease of communication because it's just they're there and people use them. But I think it also really gets in the way of people getting, a good understanding of the big picture and what the real monster of OCD is, which is doubt. So OCD is called the doubt disorder in actual other countries um, because that's what it's all about. It's not about contamination. It's not about your baby. It's not about your sexual orientation or um, your relationship and relationship OCD, right? And, and when we try to put ourselves or other people into buckets, they put such an overemphasis intentionally or unintentionally on the content. Like the relationship must be the problem or, um, you know, my baby's safety is the problem. And it's like, no, it's the doubt. Like that's the real monster. Um, I think of it kind of like Wizard of Oz, like where there's all like it, it looks so big and it looks so fancy and so mystical. But actually it's like this teeny tiny little being behind the curtain and it's doubt. Um, it's the intolerance of uncertainty. It's doubt. Um, and that's why so often we see people, their OCD, they'll say that it like uh, bounces from theme to theme, kind of like whack-a-mole. Um, like, you know, one month they're worried about their relationship, but then all of a sudden, you know, it was their sexual orientation and then it was contamination because of COVID. And it's like, that's totally normal because it never was any of those superficial content areas in the first place. It was always about doubt. It was always about your need for certainty. It was always about your intolerance for discomfort um, and your need and your urgency to get rid of those things. So 
Um, I always think that, you know, OCD will latch on to whatever it is that you find value in. OCD will latch on to whatever it is that is a, that you're not able to accept uncertainty about. Um, I always say like, whatever it is that you're not accepting certainty about, that's what OCD will latch on to, right? So I get in the car every day and I never look at the weather. I never look at the driving reports around my house. I never have anybody else drive for me or avoid highways because I accept the uncertainty, right? Like I know that every time I get in the car, it's not a 100% guarantee, I accept that. I, I I hope nothing happens, of course. And I also accept that just because something is probable or just because something is possible doesn't mean that it's probable. I roll those dice. I, I roll it because I, yeah. it, it's of my values to go and get my child from daycare. It's within my own values to have autonomy, get my own groceries, go to work, do whatever I need to do. The risk is not greater than the reward. But when it comes to certain things, right, for me, it was my son, I very distinctly remember thinking the stakes are too high. The stakes are too high. I'm not dealing with that. I don't care what happens. I don't care what cycle I'm giving into right now. The stakes are too high. I am not tolerating the uncertainty that I could have hurt him. So wherever you are not tolerating uncertainty, that's what OCD will go on to. And it can be about your, I have, I have people who have OCD about their hamster. I have people who have OCD about anything that they care about. So if you feel like you don't belong into one of those buckets, it's, it's okay. Like OCD can latch onto anything. Um, But I would want everyone out there to know, keep the subtype. That's fine. I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. But at the same time, we need to realize and recognize that the big monster here is doubt. Um, And all these little superficial content areas, it's basically like the same actor, but in different movies. It's the same monster. Oh, I'm so glad you brought up, you know, the intolerance of uncertainty because that was like the biggest thing for me, right? And I tried to make things certain in every and all situation. And then I felt more discomfort. Like uh-huh. the more I sought out certainty, the more discomfort I felt. And like you said, it would bounce from one thing to the next to the next because I was just trying to like have some sense of control and not have things be uncertain. So I'm really curious. I have to ask the question, right? It's the gold standard treatment. So we know that it works, but can you give us an example? Like, have you had a client that you've seen like really good success with in using the RP? Oh my gosh. So many. And of course, you know, nothing is perfect. Even the most gold standard treatment, you know, the best, most effective medication, like everything, there is always an exception to the rule, right? So yeah, there are some people out there who are, we would say are either treatment non-responsive or treatment resistant, and they are different. So treatment non-responsive are going to be people who we do everything, everything is right. We've tried all of our tactics. We believe to the best of our ability and to all of our supervisors and other colleagues' abilities that we are trying everything we can. They're trying everything they can, and they're just not responding to treatment. In that way, we might recommend, say, a higher level of care, or we might recommend TMS or some other kind of more invasive um, type of procedure or a medication change or something. Treatment resistant is someone who we probably could make some progress, but they're just not there yet. They're not motivated. They're maybe actively resistant in treatment. So those are different. Um, But I absolutely do think for the grand majority of individuals, ERP can work, especially if you find the right therapist fit. So um, I have so many good examples of, of 
you know, success stories that come up. I, two that come to mind are, I worked with an individual who I remember reading their intake and I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm going to get this person. I don't know what I'm going to do because they had numerous stays in previous hospitals. And this person, it it was kind of like I was their last chance. We were their last chance. Um, And so this individual uh, needed to feel just right before they took steps forward. They needed like before I take this, move my foot this way, I need to, it needs to feel right. Um, And whatever that meant to that person, maybe it was like their mental state or their body needed to feel right, whatever, whatever that was that OCD made them think it was. Um, And it got so bad that they would urinate on themselves, that they would not be able to make it to the cafeteria in time to eat, um, really significantly impaired and really significant distress. You can imagine this individual was not able to, you know, maintain relationships or maintain a job or take care of himself. Um, now this person is fully functional, um, has a job, uh, has relationships. He still, to this day though, still, this is maybe four or five years later, he still does exposures every day. He still does exposures. He still has a little notebook where he tracks his uh, triggers and tracks his rituals. And he actively make, he has made this a lifestyle. Um, and that's what's necessary, right? Um, you have to make it a lifestyle. You can't get in and get it done with and then leave and go back to the way that things were. You have to make this a lifestyle. Um, it is a new way of relating to your anxiety and to the world around you. So that was the uh, really, I think, the contributor for him. Um, and I worked with another individual who um, was so impaired by her OCD that she was about to, she pretty much like if she was either going to need to see me or she was going to get uh, uh <clears throat> sent away essentially like to an asylum or to a really intensive uh, medical care facility against her will uh, because she had gotten in several car accidents because her OCD rituals at night were so interfering with her sleep. She would get in, she would fall asleep when she was driving. Um, And so uh, she was very uh, concerned about chemicals in her food. It had to be all organic all all organic, everything from one uh, chain. Um, And it was very, very restrictive. It was very, and it was not necessarily about her weight or her body composition. It was the chemicals um, and like uh, fear of having an allergic reaction, right? So when you have an allergic reaction, you go on an elimination diet, take that to like the nth degree. So this person couldn't just have peas. They needed to have all organic frozen peas in this bag from this direct chain. It couldn't be frozen peas from a different chain. So you can imagine it was awful. She was eating maybe two different types of food. Um, And so by the end of her treatment, we were able to enjoy for Halloween, we were able to enjoy Hershey Kisses, we were able to order pizza. Um, And Ah. yeah, it it took a long time. And she really, I got we got her to take medication. um, Because you can imagine she was so severe, she needed medication, but she was terrified of the effects of that medication. And so we got her we that's a really great example of how we did exposures about that, right? So we had her just sit in a room with the medication pack. And then we took the medication, the pill out of the pack. And then we had her touch the med- the pill, hold it in her hand. And then we had her touch it to her cheek, like right outside of her mouth. Then we had her touch it to her lip. And then we had her lick the pill. Then we had her hold the pill in her mouth. And then finally, eventually we had to have her take it. But um, yeah, those that was a really gradual um, kind of approach. And it worked out really well. She was great. She ended up um, being able to kind of graduate from that program. She went on to a lower level of care. And um, yeah, Hershey Kisses and pizza. It was a great time. 
Isn't that what we all want? That is yeah. so cool. I I love thank you so much for sharing those stories because it does, I mean, you see, you hear, you know, ERP is the gold standard treatment. It works, but it's so nice when you hear actual stories of people moving through it and like successfully moving through it. And I love how you also included, you know, it wasn't just the ERP. Some people did need medication and and making it a lifestyle, right? Because I think like people will always ask me, Shannon, when did you recover from panic and agoraphobia? And I'm like, I didn't wake up one morning and say, well, this is it. Today's the day, you know, mark the calendar. It, this is the day that I recovered. Like I literally made it a lifestyle and I, all my habits, the way that I moved through life, like all of it changed and I had to keep up yeah. with it. And I think that part can be you know, everyone wants a quick fix. We want to feel better and we don't want to have to struggle with these things, but it is, it's like you have to adopt the lifestyle and then it sort of just, you know, it carries through and, and you find success. Um, so I'm curious if, if this is resonating with somebody and they have interest in ERP, either learning more or like giving this treatment a shot, how can somebody find someone that is trained in ERP? Good question. So it's really important if you have OCD, and I would argue for other anxiety conditions as well, you were saying that you didn't even maybe realize it at the time, but that that was something that you were given. And I'm so glad. And that's probably one of the reasons why you're you've been able to um, experience a little bit of recovery and kind of commit to that. So um, really important that you find someone who is knowledgeable and trained and has experience in exposure and response prevention. So um, ERP is kind of under the umbrella of CBT, which is cognitive behavioral therapy. So just because someone says that they do CBT, it does not mean that they do ERP. They, They might have experience in ERP, but just because they say CBT doesn't automatically assume that they know how to do ERP. CBT just assumes that you know, we recognize that behaviors, thoughts, and emotions interact and influence one, one another. Um, there's a lot of different uh, interventions that go under that umbrella of CBT. ERP is just one of them. So really important that you find someone that very clearly knows and understands ERP. Um, and just because someone says on their therapist profile that they work with people who have OCD doesn't necessarily mean that they know how to do ERP either. So um, making sure that you're finding someone who says that they know how to do ERP, they have experience in doing it. And if you're unsure, ask your therapist. Um I have no problem at all with people asking me, like, how long have you been working with this community? Uh, what's your level of experience working with people who have OCD? Um, you know, what can I expect from you as my therapist doing ERP? Um, it's all really, really important because if you don't get ERP, not only can it be not helpful and just keep you stagnant, it might actually be detrimental. Um, some other tactics that might be used in other less structured uh, treatment modalities, like challenging your thoughts. It might be a slippery slope to reassurance for some people and it could actually make them worse. So um, obviously at NoCD, all of our therapists are trained and specialized in OCD treatments. Um, you know, but if that's not aligned with, with what it is that you can handle um, or what you're able to do at that time, I would certainly look at, you know, psychologytoday.com is another good resource. I would also encourage iocdf.org. Uh, that's the International OCD Foundation. They also have a directory there. Um, but really making sure that you uh, take it upon yourself if you need to, to advocate and make sure that you get the best treatment possible because um, 
it's just so sad. It takes 10 to 17 years on average for someone when they first start to exhibit signs that are consistent with OCD, 10 to 17 years from that point to when they get an accurate diagnosis and the right treatment. And that's really sad because we have this gold standard treatment. So, you know, it's 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 not an it's not an issue of okay, once we get the person, we can't treat them. It's an issue of how do we get the people? Um, because we have the we have the goods, we just need to like yeah. get them to be aware of it. So um advocate for yourself for sure, one hundred percent. No CD, IOCDF.org and psychology today, but be careful. Just because they say CBT, it does not mean that they know about ERP. Yeah. Thank you so much. That was awesome. And I will definitely um, provide the links in the show notes um, to those places that Jenna just mentioned. So I, you have an immense amount, amount of knowledge and I am just blown away. And I can tell that you are super passionate about this subject. And I just have enjoyed this conversation so much. I know that it's going to be helpful. So if people want to find and connect with you, I personally love your Instagram and I think that you share a lot of really helpful stuff. So if people want to find and connect with you, where can they find you, Jenna? Thank you so much. I forget. I try to make my Instagram just a fun project of creativity. And whenever someone says that they really love it, I'm like, oh, people actually see it. That's weird. <laughs> um, that's great. But it also, like I told you, I'm nervous. I'm an, I'm an anxious person. So I'm really glad that you love it. Uh, but yeah, I live mostly on Instagram. It's at jenna.overbaugh. So just my name with a dot in the middle. Um and yeah, you can look me up there. I Like you said, I also have a podcast where I go super in-depth about OCD, ERP, and other related concepts. So if you want to continue to learn more and nerd out with me, um, it's called All the Hard Things. It's available on um, Spotify, on uh, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. So uh, between Instagram and uh, the podcast world, you should be able to find me. Awesome. I love it. Well, thank you so much, Jenna. I have really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of A Healthy Push. If you want more, head on over to ahealthypush.com for the show notes and lots more tips, tools, and inspiration that will support your recovery. And if you're hoping for me to cover a certain topic, be sure to join my Instagram community at A Healthy Push and let me know in the comments what you want to hear next.